welcome to this episode of Unmasked with Henry Kaiser. That's me. I am so happy that you are here and listening in because today we're going to have a great conversation with Paul Whedon. We're going to be uncovering the beliefs of Paul and what has made him to what he is today. In our discussion, we're going to be talking about his beliefs of running a million miles an hour and always wanting to learn until he hits plateaus. But what did Paul do? Paul started his career very young as a DJ, later became a face in English television as the most successful British TV shopping host. That took him to Beverly Hills in this early stage of his life. Now he's back in the UK. He's a video communications coach. So he really understands what he talks about when it comes to video communication. If you haven't checked out Paul yet, I suggest you connect with him on LinkedIn because the content which he gives out is great. So if that's not enough and you are on video calls now and again, then do stay on until the end because that's when Paul will give a few hints and tips of how to have great conversation on video and what really builds a connection. With no further ado, enjoy the conversation. Paul, we've been talking before and you have had a very interesting life, you know, from being a DJ, becoming a best-selling TV shopping host, and then working in different things afterwards, like real estate. Can you share with us maybe your different careers and who is the authentic Paul really? And what is the belief that you have with life when it comes to career? Um. There's a lot in there, Henry. So look, you're right. I've, I've done a lot of things and I kind of don't realize how much I've done until someone like your good self points it out. But you're right. You, I became a DJ at 16. That was my full-time profession until I was 24. I became a shopping TV host, very quickly the best-selling shopping TV host in the UK. I was head of broadcasting then for a shopping network in Los Angeles. I was a 29-year-old young man living in Beverly Hills, which still feels surreal now. I ran my own talent agency. I've had my own property portfolio. Um, I'm now a video communications coach. There's been a lot. And I think the main reason I've done so many things is because I love learning. And when I'm learning, I'm stimulated. And when I'm learning, I get excited by overcoming new challenges and getting new information and new data and new skills. And then when it starts to plateau, which inevitably in life things tend to, then I get not necessarily bored, but I get itchy for the next bit of learning. So I think it's partly that, but I think also not so much now, beyond 47, I'm at, uh, you know, at the middle stage of my life, shall we say, but I think throughout my 20s and 30s and even my late teens as well, I worked at a million miles an hour, a million miles an hour. So when I started to plateau, not only did the lack of learning then stop the adrenaline and excitement, I'd always then slightly burn out as well and would need a break. So in between each of those careers, there was always quite large breaks, sometimes six months, sometimes two years. So I think it was this striving for knowledge followed by a plateau, which then resulted in a elements of boredom, which then encouraged um, a little bit of exhaustion, reset, go again, come up with a wild idea, drop a gear and go again. I think that's kind of been the pattern. 
over the last 30 years. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you have that uh, striving or hunger? And, and where do you think that comes from? I genuinely don't know. I think, look, most of us have got that second narrative in our heads, right? The voice in there that's always talking. And I think my voice in the head, and I'm getting better and better at quieting down uh, the older I get, but I think that, that voice for me has always been, you're doing all right, but you, maybe you could do a bit better. You're doing all right, maybe you could do a bit better. Now, for me, at this stage in my life, I don't think I need that as much. So I'm trying to switch that internal narrative to, you're doing great, chill out, enjoy what you're doing. But I think over the last 30 years, that's been there. Now, quite where that comes from, nurture, nature, a mix of both, I genuinely don't have the answer. But that second internal dialogue of, come on, Paul, bit more. Come on, Paul, bit better. Come on, Paul, see what else is out there. That's always been a constant for me. Now, looking back at uh, young Paul at the beginning of your career, uh, maybe as a DJ and then going into, into to shopping uh, channels later, what do you think made that switch? What, is it a characteristic till trade that just opened doors for you or is it a very deliberate, is it a search or something that found you or how do you choose your careers? Let's try and think about the first one. I think that provides some insight because you, I was very, very, very shy. The shyest boy you'll ever meet. I was so quiet in school. And when I was 16, I found in the loft in the attic, trying to make you um, internationally friendly with my language, <laughs> um, I found some old DJ equipment because my father was a DJ in the early 70s and it was old and it was dusty. And I kind of got it out and thought, ooh, I can make some money here. I wanted to make a bit of money. Maybe I was in a house that was kind of quite driven by money being successful. So money was kind of a target for me. So I dusted off all this old equipment, realized that I had old DJ equipment and old fashioned records. This is, I'm 16, so we're talking about uh, 1990, 1991. Um, and the records are from the 70s. So I realized that I had to find a niche to be able to do something with this. So next thing you know, I put an advert in the local paper uh, looking for opportunities to DJ at parties, but for like, you know, 50th birthday parties and wedding anniversaries for older people because yeah. I had the older music. So this all made sense and was all very exciting and the adrenaline kicked in. And all of a sudden the phone started ringing and I started booking gigs. And then all of a sudden I, I was at this first gig. I couldn't drive. I had to get a friend of mine to drive me there. And I was stood there and I was thinking, I'm 16. I have no idea what I'm doing. I haven't got a clue. And also I'm really, really shy. But I realized that at that kind of function, you need to say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, happy birthday, Henry. Congratulations to Henry and his wife on their wedding anniversary. So I had to speak on the microphone. And I spoke on the microphone and everyone in the room stopped and looked at me. And a part of me went, oh, this is new. And I think that first career was born from there, that the super shy boy that suddenly got a moment of attention. And if you think about what I did, DJ, presenter, 
worked in TV, work in media. You know, I've worked in that industry for a very long time. And a lot of people in that industry are classic attention seekers. Not all, but lots of them, certainly on the front line of it. And I think that injection of getting attention right there, I think that bled across a lot of those early career decisions for sure. And how would you say like in the beginning with trying to understand it, did you find mentors or did you kind of just give it a shot and see what worked? I mean, because if you can, you can crash and burn very quickly if you don't get the right response. Were you just lucky or a natural talent? Um, I think I was lucky. That first gig, I was on with a band. And if you're on with a band as a DJ at a party, you only have to really do about an hour. So I was saved by the middle amount of time. If I'd have been on my own that first night, it would have ended dead. And who knows what direction would have traveled. So an element of luck. I think there's an element of luck in life. You could argue you make your own luck. But I was certainly lucky in that moment there and many other occasions in my life. Um, but I've always been a good student, Henry. And I've not necessarily had what I would consider mentors. But I've always looked for people who were better than me in what I'm doing. And I've always then tried to watch, learn, and devour what they're doing. Take that, play with it, make mistakes. Some of them, you know, I've made plenty of big professional mistakes in my life. But then try and take that learning and make it my own and me. And then once I've done that, I'll learn from somebody else and learn from somebody else, which sounds a little bit cutthroat. It's not like I collected mentors and learned from them. Most of these things, because ultimately I was shy and I can still be shy now. Most of these things I actually did from a distance. But for me, it was about finding experts in the area and learning from them. And I've always, always, always done that, even now today. Hmm. Looking back at my uh, life, I always think back to the beginnings when I was in sales and trying to strategize around sales in my first roles. Um, I got a lot of mentorship from books, but then trying to apply them in a very safe zone to try to, you know, preparation prevents panic or uh, in, in real life scenarios, you fall back to your best uh, practice, not really to your not you don't rise to the occasion. What would young Paul have done? Because I mean, obviously it was, why I want to go that way is to understand like your, your mindset, which you've built up on to later then go on TV. What, how was your practice routine? Was it very conscious or was it also just? I always had, and to a certain extent still have a fearlessness. You have to make mistakes in order to learn. We all know that. And I've always been okay with making mistakes. I think, look, I mentioned it earlier. I worked at a million miles an hour, which created many, many problems in those cycles of crashing in between careers. But that desire, innate desire to go, 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 push, 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 meant if I made a mistake, I just get up and go again and go again and go again. So I just kept doing that. I think, you know, I think you can only do that at a certain age, he don't do that really when you don't have uh, family responsibilities. Mm. Um, and I think if I could go back and speak to younger Paul a bit, it would be, you know, sometimes just slow down. You do need to rest and repair. 
And also you do need to notice when you're doing well, because I just wasn't, I didn't notice. I didn't notice I was doing well until I'd stopped doing something. And you go, oh, I see that went pretty well, didn't it? But in the time I never noticed, it was just go, 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 go. Better, better, or made a mistake. Oh, got to change that. Go again. It was just this constant going all the time, constant. I can relate to that. And uh, there's always the saying that you, you, you look forward, but you understand backwards about your life, right? So it's, uh, and then understanding that and seeing the moments where you were successful and not taking actually the moment to breathe and, and enjoy them. I can, I can very much re relate to that. Um, looking at the latest stages, which is the TV presenting times, how do you think the industry has evolved during that time? And, um, and how, you know, what would you tell somebody if Paul was starting now? What, how, what kind of advice would you give him to be going into, you know, you, we're talking about social media, we're talking about media presence, we're talking about people being influencers and TikTokers. And obviously, you, you had the ability to have a platform. It wasn't like you couldn't decide on it yourself at that time. But what kind of, I mean, you're very present now. Um, what, kind, what would you tell Paul to, to kind of get into, into that industry? Well, look, you know, I first got into television, TV and media in 2000. Do a lot has changed <laughs> since 2000. That's five years before YouTube. Um, so look, it's a lot easier now to make content and put it out there by whichever platform you feel is appropriate to you. And of course, that is ever-evolving and ever-changing. But of course, there's a lot more content and a lot more competition. There's a lot more noise. But I think the basic principle isn't so different. Because if I think through that early, late, sorry, late 90s period I was trying to get into TV, I would make recordings of myself on VHS, if anyone's listening to this who's under 30, they'll be like, oh my God, who's this old man? But I used to make recordings on a VHS tape and I'd send them off to TV channels. And 99% of the time I'd hear absolutely nothing. But ultimately I was making content and putting it out there. And I kept doing that for a few years until I got the smallest of bites and things started rolling from there. And I think the principle right now is exactly the same. Make some content that you believe is true to you, that you believe reflects your personality, what you want to say, and put it out there. It's easier to get it out there, but I would suggest it is harder now to get noticed because, look, you know, I've got uh, lots of friends who've got kids who are, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13. What do you want to be when you're growing up? I want to be an influencer. I want to be a TikTok star. I want to be a, you know, the percentage of young people who want to be in that area. I think it's a lot higher than it was when I was 10 or 11. No, I don't remember anyone else going, I want to be on TV. I want to be a, a presence in the world of media. So I think the amount of people doing it is a lot, lot higher. So the competition, competition is more fierce. So the challenge is high. But I think the basic principle of make some content, get it out there, see what happens. I think that's actually the same. And I think it's really interesting. And I mean, it brings up the, the, the question of quality versus quantity, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And uh, we see that in the business world and, and corporate world as well, where we're trying to, well, be seen and uh, be seen as individuals, build networks. I mean, 
obviously when you were in a in a different stage i'm sure you have had shows which were not really great but what do you think that the downside or upsides of both uh, quality versus quantity uh, uh, discussion comes up well, Anything where you burnt yourself or which you've learned from? <laughs> well, you, you, you clearly managed to find some of my uh, early shopping TV shows by uh, that reference. <laughs> because at the beginning, I was pretty awful. Um, but that's the point. Like everything in life, like you know, take it back to a basic level, like riding a bike that 99% of children do at whatever age. When you start, you are a bit rubbish and you keep going and you get better and better and better. And everyone, can reach a level of proficiency riding a bike, or, or most people at least. And then whether you go on to be an Olympic cyclist or not then depends on a number of things about worth, ethic, and skill set, et cetera, et cetera. But pretty much everyone can learn to ride a bike. Pretty much everyone can learn to communicate over video. I really do believe that as long as you are willing to do some videos at the beginning that aren't very good, as long as you're willing to put yourself out there and realize that people go, well, what is this? What are you talking about? There's no structure. You're looking in the wrong place. Your lighting is awful. So I think just like everything in life, be bold, press record. If you think that having some sort of video content is useful for you, and of course it is a necessary fundamental part now of how we communicate on video calls. But I think we've all just got to lose the stigma and get going. And I do think it's a slight age thing as well, because look, I'm 47 years old, so child me knows that the only people you see on video are polished presenters on the news, on sports channels, on TV. And I think generationally, there are some people maybe age 40 and over that, that are a little bit, well, if I'm going to talk on camera, it's got to be perfect and polished like that TV program I used to watch. That's not the world anymore. We've got to let go of some of these um, intrinsic subconscious fears about being on camera. And I think younger people in the main are a bit more free with it because of the volume, because it's not exclusive to professionals. So I think if you are somebody listening to this now who is struggling with what to do on video, whether that be recorded content or live, I think we've got to remember it is not a TV presenter performance. It doesn't need to be perfect. Be bold, go for it. It's fine. It's just like a conversation with another human being, you are allowed to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's really valuable. And I mean, it's also from, from the mindset, we have that all the time in, in discussions, um, whether it's valuable to share this and uh, am I doing the right pronunciation? So I think a lot of it, as you said, is really just about getting it out. But as you said, appearing, and I mean, this is also in your current role, which you have in your, and your, your career right now, where you're teaching people to do this. And I, I mean, I know as well, a lot of people appear with, or are very much struggling with, with being on camera. And what kind of advice would you give these to improve video presence and, and convey, you know, positive messages with authority and, and yeah, good, good messaging? Look, a lot of people are struggling with confidence. I think that is the fundamental challenge for a lot of people. And when they're on a video call, there's that whole, well, do I look right? Am I sitting right? Am I talking right? Are my hands in the right place? Is the camera in the right place? So I think there's a lack of fundamental basic knowledge. I think that is the first thing. And I think now that we are just over three years into this volume 
of video calls. I think a lot of people have sunk into an element of bad habit complacency. Well, I've been kind of doing it this way for three years, so this will do. This is fine. This is okay. It's okay. So my confidence is okay, which means my delivery is okay, which means my level of professionalism on a video call is also okay. I think there's this band of it's all right, it's okay that most people are living in. And I think there's elements of confidence that's needed to break out of that. And, and it's simple things, you know. How often, I know you have done this, Henry, but to anybody who's listening to this, how often have you just spent 30 seconds looking at how your environment looks on a video call? What's in your background? How well you're lit? Are you coming across as well as you'd like to, tonally, emotionally? And if it's not as good as you would like, if it's not as present or as powerful or as professionally strong as it would be if you met somebody in person physically, then change what the other person sees on the screen. Create a visual virtual presence that suits you. Experiment, leave the camera on, change things in the background. At the beginning of video calls, make sure that when the other person comes on, you're not head down typing or looking at your phone or, or even worse, off camera and then walk in. Like you wouldn't do that to somebody in person in a meeting room. When they walked in, you'd look at them and be present. It's the same thing on video. Um, and it's these small things that when you understand how important they are, you wouldn't do it in person. Why are you doing it on camera? You start to tune these small things. They, of course, then build into something of substance, which then gives you confidence to be yourself on camera, just the same as you would be yourself in person, in whatever scenario, in whatever conversation. Hmm. I mean, that self, uh, that idea of self-reflection and self-awareness comes to mind there. Is there, would you say, some kind of checklist or idea in your head where you go, listen, for the people who are listening now, you know, when you sit down next time at your desk, just like run this checklist through your head or, you know, is either the obvious things are, I'm also thinking about how do I want to communicate and, and what message, not just the lighting, because I think a lot of people think about lighting, but um, there's so much in communicating that um, is there, is there something you could give us like a mental framework? Yeah, look, checklist, you mentioned lighting, but it is important. Number one, can the other person see you? If you were to sit in a physical meeting room with somebody in person and you were sat in the dark, you would turn the lights on because intuitively you and I both know that in order to be able to communicate, you've got to be able to see someone. So if you're sat in the dark, buy a ring light. They are between 15 and 20 pounds, euros, or dollars, it will transform how someone sees you and therefore allows you to communicate. That's number one. Secondly, make sure that your camera is not so low that you're towering over the person. If you can see the ceiling on your video call, nine times out of 10, that means that your camera is too low, which means the other person feels like a child when they talk to you because they're looking up at you. That's number two. Number three, is your background a mess? Tidy it up, but have some personality. Don't go with a blank white wall. Would you meet somebody in a blank white 
box out there in person, the physical world, of course you wouldn't. So don't sit in a blank white box at home. And also if you're using a virtual background, if there's a reason because you're trying to hide something in the background in a hotel room or in a cafe, I get it. But 99% of the time, lose the virtual background. If you're thinking, really? Next time you speak to somebody on a video call and they've got a virtual background, look how flat they look. They look two-dimensional. They look less real and less human. A real background makes you look and feel more three-dimensional, which means the other person receives you as being more human. So there are three things I'd look at in terms of a checklist. Lighting, eyeline, background. Get those three things right. They are the basic fundamentals. And, you know, as you know, Henry, from some of our conversations over the last few months, I could spend about an hour answering that question in the form of a keynote. But like everything in life, you've got to get the basics right. And those three, in terms of your visual, virtual presence, confidence for you, and the ability for the other person to engage with you on an adult-to-adult -adult level, those three are the first three things I tick off every single time. Yeah. Now, because we're trying to also understand how you think and you approach different uh, pro uh, situations, and obviously you're in the video communicating space teaching people. What do you think is the biggest kind of hurdle for people to unlock the real potential of communication power? Is it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The key thing is that people still see the technology. And the technology is creating barriers. Look, Henry, you and I right now are a couple of thousand miles away from each other. But for me, this interaction is no different if you were sat here right in my home in Newcastle in the northeast of England. For me, this emotional exchange is identical. Yes, there's some screens in the way and I've got a ring light, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of how you and I are communicating, to me, it's absolutely no different. The barriers are all gone. The barriers are gone because I understand the nuances of how you overcome each of those barriers. But that's the main problem. People still see the technology. They think the distance, the physical distance is a barrier. And it's not. And if you try and break that down at a basic human level, Right now, Henry, you have invited me into your physical space, and I've invited you into mine. We are in each other's homes right now, emotionally. And you can hear when I start talking about this, I slightly slow down and slightly lower my tone because I'm in your house, and I'm referencing being in your house. So my tone is therefore respectful because I'm in your house right now. And when you start to think a bit like that, it starts to change you tonally. It starts to change the way you think about this relationship and starts to bring you a little bit closer. And the other thing that happens because of those barriers, perceived barriers that are there, is people shout. You and I are a thousand miles apart and most people's brains go, oh, well, Henry's a long way away. I better project. Over the distance. Now, of course, that makes absolutely no sense. But look out for on video calls today, tomorrow, whether it's yourself or other people. The amount of people that are talking much too loud on video calls is extraordinary. That's one reason. The other reason on group video calls is because when you're talking to a group on video, everyone is front-facing. Front-facing groups out there in person are very unusual. 
unless you're on stage when we all know intuitively you need to project. So a part of you, when you see a group of front-facing people on video thinks, oh, I'm on stage and your brain intuitively therefore wants to talk louder and project, which again makes no sense. And they're the two main reasons why people's volume is going up. But of course, if you raise your volume, you're talking at, not talking to. That is a subtle difference, which makes a huge difference in how you connect and communicate. And also, if you are projecting and shouting and being louder, it requires so much more energy. If you drop the volume and realize the other person is very close to you, my microphone is around uh, 30 centimeters um, away from where I am. Therefore, if I talk quietly and slowly and drop my volume, you can still hear me perfectly. So it's about understanding these barriers, why those barriers are there, why your brain is in fact playing a trick on you and it's incorrect. Then when you start breaking down these barriers, you can rebuild using different communication tools that bring you emotionally much closer. Interesting. And what you're also saying is that you're considering being on stage, which is obviously something as a TV shopping host, you were a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm, we're currently going through a phase where people are talking about hybrid work and talking about synchronous and asynchronous communication. So how do you think the effectiveness of communication and, and let's put it, reframe the question maybe a little bit different. How do you think it will evolve? And what do you think is the most effective way of communication? Is it in the one-to-one -one on a video call? Or is it you see a lot of demand also for really well-produced asynchronous communication? Okay, number of things in there. Firstly, interestingly, you said when you're a shopping TV host, you're on stage. That's not actually correct. And that's the fallacy that is contributing to this performance on screen. Think about it. If you're a shopping TV host, you are in a studio and you're talking to somebody in their front room. And even if that person is sat with other people, they're watching it as an individual. So actually, if you're a presenter and a shopping TV host, you're talking to an individual sat in their own home. And when you start to get that in your head, and of course, it's hard on a shopping channel because you can't see the person. Whereas on a video call like you and I are right now, Henry, as long as the other person has got their camera on, you can see that, which makes it much easier. But if you're a shopping TV host, you're talking to somebody one-on-one -on -one in their front room. So actually, that skill of talking on a shopping channel is 100% transferable to this skill on a video call. If you're somebody who's used to standing in front of a large live audience, that's a totally different thing altogether. And I've done a lot of that in my career as well. But in terms of a shopping TV host, actually the relationship is very, very similar. So you can pull a lot from there. Um, what was the rest of the question? Sorry, Henry. Well, it's really about understanding if, um, you know, about synchronous and asynchronous communication and do, is it, you know, do we record videos and send the videos? Should we do it as an email? Um, there's so many forms of communicating. Obviously, you're the expert in video, but um, there's people are struggling with trying to communicate in a hybrid environment. And if you're seeing changes and demand in different areas as well, and what your belief is also where you think how it resonates with the people, 
you know what 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 makes a, a communication worthwhile having or what what's a good communication if you're trying to bring across a point sometimes i feel some people are trying to to fill minutes and other times you, they're just trying to bring information out is there you know is there is there things which you're seeing in the market as well with your with the people which you work with very directly how they're thinking and reframing the current in order to be ready for let's say the future I think the key thing here, Henry, is choosing what is relevant for each situation. Because what I think is happening at the moment is people are doing what they think they're supposed to do. So, for example, if somebody's got a presentation to hand over to their team, at the moment, everyone's going, well, the best way to do that is to get my whole team on a video call and I'll present it to them and use loads of slides. That's kind of the standard answer to that. Now, on occasions, that might be the right thing to do. Uh, using slides is something that's done exceptionally badly on video. It's something we can talk a bit more about if we've got time over the course of the day, but I don't want to go off on a tangent. But that's not the only way. You can still email people all of the points. And I think people are using email slightly less, certainly with the clients I'm dealing with, and for slightly less impact. People aren't sending agendas ahead quite as much. People aren't sending free notes ahead of meetings quite as much as they used to. And if they're done well, you can make the meeting shorter so it becomes a much better use of time, particularly if they're sent a few days earlier and you give people room and time to read them. But also, you can send people short pre-recorded videos with the information. This is something I do a lot. If I've got a client who wants to know some key fundamentals about a trading program, I could get them on a one-on-one -on -one call and spend half an hour going through it with them. I could, but it'd probably take me three and a half weeks to get that half hour call booked in through their PA, through their EA, trying to get around their schedule and mind. Or I could sit down and record three or four two-minute videos that aren't perfect, that are just me talking to camera. And like in any conversation, you sometimes make mistakes and sometimes fumble your words. And I can send those three short videos to the client so that he or she can watch them at their leisure, along with a document or an email that gets across the same point so that when they're ready, we can have a 10 minute video call to speak about it. And I think it's about choice because look, Three and a half years ago, more or less, we were thrust into thousands of hours of video calls for reasons that we all know. We have no time to think about it. We just had to stink or swim. And most of us just about managed to find a way to swim. And I think some people are still swimming on video calls, trying to stay afloat, going video call, video call, video call. Now I'm all for video calls. If it wasn't for video calls, my life would be immeasurably different. And I love them. And as you can tell, I clearly feel that there is a um, a way to have a human connection that's the same as if you were sat there in person. I really do believe that. And I believe I've showed it with my clients over the last few years. But it's not the only way. Email still exists. WhatsApp still exists. WhatsApp video still exists. LinkedIn video still exists. I think about stepping back and going, right, for this interaction, for this form of communication with this individual and their personality with this subject matter, which of these tools should I use? And I think it's the choice that people are making a mistake in not looking at. 
I think people are going through too many bad communication habits that have been ingrained for reasons that I understand over the last three, three and a half years. Very interesting. And I think you're, you're mentioning a lot of points which uh, I can really relate with when it comes to uh, understanding which tools to use when. Why do you think it is that people fall back to bad habits, although they know it's good? With regards to using video calls, Henry? Well, or with regards to, let's say it's not ideal communication. Do you think because we can be in other people's homes, we can be a little bit more, let's call it disrespectful if they're, with their time? Or do you think, I mean, I get invitations all the time. Let's do this on a quick video call. Um, and it's, you want to be polite. With video call, it's never actually that quick, it's, right? Henry? It's always half an hour. And yeah. it's always at a very, and often it's a pitch or a change of something which could have been very easy communicated. Um, with, I mean, you're, cause you're also doing this on, on high uh, level with, with very big decision makers. Maybe to, to reframe the question like this, when you work with high level individuals who have large responsibilities. What is their preferred way of communicating and why do you think that is? The very senior people have worked out that it's about choosing which form of communication. That's coming from the top. And when they schedule a quick video call, it is genuinely a quick one. It might be 10 or 15 minutes. Whereas you've already said, I think common language or common interpretation of the phrase Quick call is half an hour, sometimes 40 minutes, which never feels quick. And I'm with you. I had one yesterday that was just, could be done the five minute email. It's a waste of half an hour of my time and the other six people on the call, which means it's actually a waste of three hours collectively of our time. It happens consistently, but the very, very senior people are starting to realize that it's about controlling the choices, about sitting there before you commit to everything and going right. I need to liaise with Henry today. Should I try and schedule a half hour call? Or can I just send him a two minute video that he'll reply to in the next day or two? Or write to it be fine by email? Or shall I? And I think it's that. And you asked why we're in these bad habits. And I think it's back to that point of three years ago, we were thrust into it and we have no time to think. None. Everybody was just trying to survive and we were trying to survive in a, an emotional, in amongst an emotional landscape of fear. Three years ago, we were all petrified. So we were petrified for our own lives and our families' lives. Plus, we were petrified professionally. The whole thing is going to collapse and we're going to earn no money tomorrow. So we just had to do what we had to do. And that was video calls. The technology was there and video calls saved us all professionally but we're still in that lifeboat all of the time. And I think it's now time to adjust the amount of time we spend on video call. And of course, if we use it slightly less because we email a bit more and send pre-reads a bit more and send these odd video notes that we can easily do on our phone very quickly, if we slightly reduce the amount of video calls that we have, the quality will increase because the quality of video interaction will improve because you're more present in each of those conversations. So the short answer to your question is the senior people 
are realizing it's about using and utilizing different forms of communication, depending on the interaction that's necessary. Interesting. And uh, one question which also comes up, uh, which is when we do webinars or big events, and it's always the question of getting attention and maintaining it and capturing it for a certain amount of time. And I mean, when I see TV shopping, I don't as much anymore <laughs> when I used to, because I thought it was very... Left inside retired, Henry, right? Um... <laughs> but it's, you uh, uh, I mean, you can watch it for a long, long time because there's always new things happen. And what I wonder is, um, what do you think that is? What is the, the magnet? And is there something which we can learn from that magnet in the way we communicate? Okay, few things. Again, this is, you know, I could answer this question with a 45-minute keynote, genuinely, Henry, but um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that because you don't want the 45-minute version, I'm sure. But there are a few things. Look, a shopping TV presenter is talking to someone in their home. And you can even hear, now I'm thinking about it, my tone has changed. So the tone is more relaxed, tone is a little more gentle, the tone is more personable. And this tone, like I'm talking now, and this is natural to me, you've got to find your own place with it, is much easier to engage with over a long period of time. Radio presenters, exactly the same thing. They might be talking to millions, but it feels like they're talking one-on-one -on -one to you or supply the language, you. If I'm talking to 3,000 people and I'm doing a keynote presentation, which often happens, I'll still use singular language. Nice to see you today. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I can't wait to explain to you how you can be better on all of your video calls. I'm having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So that's the first thing. Secondly, silence. The most powerful tool that you've got, there's that you again, the most powerful tool that you have got on a video call is this. Because when I pause for a few seconds, the next thing I say, you are 100% listening to. Now, people are afraid of silence on video calls and webinars. And the main reason is because you're sat on your own. And on a webinar, 99.9% .9 of people almost certainly will have their microphone muted, which means if you stop talking, you're sat in a silent room on your own because you see all the barriers of technology and you think everybody is so far away. And because it's so silent, if you're all sat in a physical space, you'd hear people breathing or dropping a pen or picking up a cup or coughing. Because of the silence, your brain goes, oh my gosh, it's so quiet, I better keep talking. And everyone keeps talking and never pauses for breath and so on and so forth. And they just keep going. And this constant barrage of noise doesn't allow you singular language again as the listener to have any space to emotionally breathe. So if you think about the fact that you're talking to an individual, that will change your tone. If you therefore use singular language, they'll feel more connected to you and your message. And if you sometimes realize that taking a pause is the most powerful tool of them all. If you use those three things, which you will see on shopping channels, which you will see good communicators using in all sorts of scenarios, you apply those three to your webinar presentations, they're really powerful. And if you're struggling to have a bit of silence because of that impending sense of doom by the silent room, just pause and take a, uh, take a glass and a drink of water. I'm making a noise to overemphasize I was drinking there. 
but that will just allow you to feel comfortable while you pause. And the pause is also great because if someone stopped listening, they'll always come back because they'll panic as to what they might be missing. <laughs> that was really uh, valuable to, to, to get that insight to understand. Paul, do you think there's topics which was really worthwhile sharing with the, with the listeners where you think um, about the concept and your understanding of, of what video communication or communication as a whole means and and um yeah anything you think we missed okay couple of bugbears for you that i think just have to be eradicated from video call culture um ultimately video communications is about connecting engaging and communicating with another human being it's human to human the technology aren't offering barriers the technology are making things much easier I didn't have to get on a plane and travel for half a day to get to you having me to have this conversation. I don't have to get on a bus, train, car, metro for an hour and go into the middle of London every day to walk and talk. And this is much easier. So the technology isn't a barrier. It makes things easier. We've got to get that in. But two bugbears. Number one, sharing slides. Oh my gosh. So. What happens on video calls, 99.9% of the time, if someone's got a presentation, is as follows. They share a slide, and then it goes slide, 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 slide. The slides stay on the screen all the way through. Death by PowerPoint is the common phrase that out there. It is so boring and so unnecessary. That would be like, out there in person, that would be like at a TED Talk, putting a slide on the screen and then standing behind the screen while you show loads more slides to the rest of your presentation. You wouldn't do it there. Why are you doing it on video? This is the way that you can use slides powerfully. You put a slide on the screen. You let the individual or the people watching digest the information on the slide. Then you take the slide down and continue your presentation. And then when you want to show something visual again to make your point, you put the slide up. You let the people or the person digest the information on the slide and you take it down again. It creates rhythm. It creates pace. Let the people watching your presentation see different visuals constantly. And the brain loves seeing new visuals because that basic monkey brain is, I'm hungry. If I see new things, that means I'm going to get food. The brain wants to see new things. So put a slide up, take a slide down, put a slide up, take a slide down. Now the slide might be up for 20 seconds if it's simple. It might be up for five minutes if it's full of data. But there will be a point where the information has been digested. At that point, take it down. That makes such a big difference to presentations. And to get in and out of slide seamlessly and confidently is just good old-fashioned practice. It's like riding a bike. You can get good of it. If you're sat there thinking, oh my gosh, I can't do that. You can. Three and a half years ago, I would have accepted that excuse, but not now here in 2023. That's bugbear number one. As you can tell, I'm quite passionate about it. And I know from my client how much of a difference it makes. It transforms things. And also because no one else is doing it, the impact is just off the charts. The second bugbear is the following. You've got a group of people let's call it six, and you're 
at the beginning of a video call to a new client, a new customer, a new colleague. And this is what happens. Hello, my name is Paul. Here's my 60 second bit about me. And then Henry does his, hello, I am Henry. Here's my 60 seconds about me. You do that around the six, it takes six minutes. It is cringeworthy for each individual. That's six minutes. That's a long time of everyone feeling uncomfortable. Don't do it that way. It is cringeworthy and a waste of time. If I was leading a meeting with five other people, I would say, hello, my name is Paul. I'm a video communications coach. I'm joined today by Henry, who is X, by Louise, who is Y, by John, who is Z, and by Zelda, who is X. Each one of those people will tell you a bit more about themselves when they talk during the course of the meeting today. It takes 45 seconds, not six minutes. You get straight in the subject matter. And as long as everyone's got a chance to talk, they can do that when they talk in minute two, five, eight, or 10. They do that little intro there. It's much more comfortable. It's much more friendly. It's much more honest and crucially feels much more human. So they're two bugbears of mine that are very, very, very easily solved. I I can really understand that. <laughs> I can really. You tell passionate about those two I, things. I, no, I'm, I'm, I completely follow you, and I'm a hundred percent sure, and I'm, I'm definitely going to apply a lot of this very quickly. Um, Paul, is there a way for people to get in contact with you, or um, is there um, a way to to I, I suggest everybody to follow Paul on LinkedIn? That's for sure, because the content is phenomenal. I get a lot of value from that. Any, any other way you would uh, like pe listeners to, to direct them to? Yeah, look, LinkedIn's the one, Henry, it really is. So it's Paul Whedon, P-A-U-L-W-E-E-D-O-N. You'll see me on LinkedIn. Um, I release fairly regular content two or three times a week. I tend to use video content, unsurprisingly, um, and I put tips and tricks up there. I tend to release videos that are 60 seconds long, the short, sharp burst. But um, that's the best way to kind of get a handle on what I'm doing and um, keep up to date with any new insights or bugbears that I want to slightly rant about with regards to video calls. Thank you so much, Paul. I, I took so much from this discussion. Honestly, I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, how to add drama if I'm, let's put it on stage or if I'm leading a conversation, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, how to use rhythm and pause and, and being more deliberate about understanding where my audience is. And I have a webinar coming up at the end of the month, uh, which I'm definitely going to reevaluate uh, of how I'm going to do this. And it's been really, really valuable. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Henry. It's been a pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about this subject matter. So thank you for inviting me on. I appreciate it. I'll speak to you soon. And of course, thank you for listening all that time with the conversation that I had with Paul. I got a lot of value from it, and I hope you did too. So if you haven't done so, I would love you to press the subscribe button so that you can be updated when the next shows come up. Next week, we're going to have a great conversation with Bob Gentle, who's an expert in personal branding. Until then, have a lovely week.